Timers enjoyed the uh, broadcast from the personal mobile studio yesterday on RVs. I got a lot of great feedback on that, and I appreciate it. Uh, what are we going to talk about today? Well, today we're going to talk about the threat of pandemics, uh, pandemic flu and other pandemics, and what they would be like and what their probability is and what we would uh, have to do in response to them. Uh, I did an immense amount of research to do this show, but I did it almost a year, I guess over a year ago. And I was just about to do this show. And then something happened. The H1N1 swine flu non-event began. And when it initially began, I, I, I shelved this event, this uh, broadcast. And I did that because it's somewhat alarming, some of the statistics that I'm going to give to you. It may be the mel- most uh, well-researched uh, show outline I've ever put together uh, in over 400 episodes of the show. And it gets into some very specific things. So at the time, my concern was that if I went ahead and did this, and it would just feed hysteria. So I wanted to see, well, is the swine flu really going to be that big a deal uh, or not before I did it? I didn't want to feed the hysteria. As I realized that the swine flu was going to be not a big deal, that it was going to be a very low death rate, it was not going to be, it was going to be more hyped by the government than uh, reality would ever equate to. Um, I decided not to do the episode for a while because I thought, well, I, the, the hysteria is still being hyped even though it's not there, and I don't want anybody using my uh, show to try to say, hey, look, this the swine flu is real, especially when a lot of people were getting a hold of it and claiming the vaccines were going to kill us all and uh, they were going to poison us and, and put us in camps by the end of the year or some nonsense like that. So I shelved it and I forgot about it. Well, today I found it. And I decided I'm going to use it. I'm going to go ahead and do this broadcast. Before I do that, don't get into the main topic of today's show. You know what we have to do, as always. That is our housekeeping. Housekeeping item number one, taking care of our sponsors. They do a lot to take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is the Berkey Guy at Directive21.com. If we do have a pandemic or we have any type of event that's going to have you confined to your home, you're going to need pure, clean water to drink, and the Berkey Guy can help you do that. The other thing is I always tell you, prepare for the worst, expect the best, and live a life that will be better, even if nothing goes wrong. Well, having Berkey water filters in your home can be used day-to-day to make sure that you're drinking clean, pure water. So, I think the Berkey guy would be a good place to go and get yourself some uh, uh, filtration system so that you can have that good clean water whether times get tough or even if they don't. Uh, next up, SOE Tactical Gear. SOE has been good to the Survival Podcast since our very beginnings. They've donated thousands of dollars worth of gear that we've given out to you, the audience. Uh, they have really taken care of us in, in a lot of ways. Uh, I really appreciate the efforts that uh, John has made, and I'll tell you what, I don't mind endorsing his product. In fact, I chose, I gave, SOE is a honorary sponsor. We gave them one year of sponsorship for no charge whatsoever just because they supported the show and just because I believed in their gear so much. So that's the, the story behind their sponsorship. And the reason I feel that way is because I've looked at their gear, I've examined it, and I've tortured it, and I can't break it. 
And uh, that's rare in this day and age that people actually overbuild their gear. Uh, competitors of SOE actually say that in a negative way because it's, well, it's a little bit more expensive. But it's a little bit more expensive for a lot better quality. So I recommend you check out SOE Tactical Gear. With that, uh, remember that you can get in touch with us and connect with us a variety of different ways. The way I want to really reinforce for you today, though, is our forum. Please join our forum. Uh, even if you've never been part of a discussion forum before, I promise you ours is different. You'll enjoy it. Uh, and I think it will really help you in your journey towards self-sufficiency. Last but not least today, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. You'll get discounts from, I think it's 17 or 18 vendors now. Uh, you'll get 20 members-only videos. You'll get over $100 worth of free e-books. And the e-books are in PDF downloadable format. You don't need anything special to read them. I've been asked that a few times recently. Uh, and you get some other goodies. And I'll tell you what, it's, it's really a great program. And uh, cost to do that is $5 a month or $50 a year. And uh, you will be supporting the show at about $0.10 cents an episode, and you will get a return of investment right away. Some of the big returns of investment include things like you get the Safe Castle Discount Lifetime Membership. You go buy that, it's $29, and that gives you huge discounts from Safe Castle on every order you place for the rest of your life. Um, there's also preferred membership from Western Botanicals. Uh, Western Botanicals uh, sells that membership for $50 a year, the same price I sell uh, MSB for. And that gives you 25% off of every single thing that they sell on every order. Uh, so those two right there at 79 bucks plus everything else. So there's my little extra long infomercial on the MSB today just to give you a little encouragement if you've been kicking it around. All right, let's get into the main topic of today's show. And again, I'm going to be talking about uh, pandemic and epidemic as a threat. Um, really more pandemic than anything else. But I want to start out with a little bit on epidemic because I think most people are familiar with the concept of an epidemic. But they're unclear on exactly what a pandemic is. In simple terms, an epidemic is uh, a given disease occurs and it begins to spread at a rate beyond what is considered typical. And it becomes very difficult for authorities to stop or even slow down its spread. A disease doesn't have to be life-threatening to be considered an epidemic. In fact, there's been epidemics of things like the common cold. The key is that they're confined to a reasonable geographic area. We might have a, a cold epidemic or a flu epidemic or, uh, you know, an epitagal epidemic or any type of disease can have an epidemic. And it can be either be really severe disease or it can be a mild disease, but it might be confined to, let's say, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, the state of Texas, the southeastern United States. Uh, those are epidemics because they're confined in your geography. Well, a pandemic is nothing more than an epidemic on a global scale. In other words, instead of a certain variant of the flu spreading uncontrollably in the southern United States or, say, Western Europe, the same disease is spreading rapidly and beyond control throughout the world. Why does this difference even matter? Well, this is where we go back to threat probability index, the impact scale, and the commonality of disaster. From a probability standpoint, since there's more epidemics than pandemics, as an individual, you're more likely to have to deal with the effects of a local, local epidemic than a global pandemic. The impact, the long-term impact of a pandemic will be much more severe than an epidemic because it affects a greater propensity of the world. It affects more people. It interferes with more travel. It causes more trouble. Uh, this is, of course, each one of these if the diseases are equal. So a mild flu epidemic or a mild flu pandemic 
all other things being equal, these are constants I'm giving you. If one of them is highly lethal and the other one is not, you know, not lethal at all, then it kind of flips things around. So what I'm saying here, when the probab probability impact and commonality, we're talking about the same illness. Just one's confined to an epidemic and one's a pandemic. So on commonality, the affected individuals will notice little difference between the two uh, other than duration. So what I mean is if you're dealing with a flu epidemic in Texas uh, or a flu pandemic globally, if you're one of the people that's directly affected by it because people around you have it or you have it and you have to deal with the situation, it's almost an identical situation. It doesn't really look any different to you from the inside looking out. The big thing is it's going to last longer. The impact will be greater in time because more people are affected. But for you, the individual, the things you have to do are absolutely identical. That's why we always come back to commonality of disaster, right? Uh, meaning that so many of the disasters we prepare for have the exact same preparations uh, that we need to be uh, making sure that we're ready for. So it doesn't really matter if it's flu. It doesn't matter if it's, uh, if it's let's say, um, we lose the electrical grid. Most of the things that we would, or there's a food shortage, or gas prices go up to 15 bucks and the truckers stop rolling. There could be all different types of things that would go on, and many of the things that we would do are covered as long as we focus on the commonality of disaster, which tells us not to worry too much about the causative effect, but to stick with preparing to deal without the systems of support. So, but when we look at epidemic individually, how real is the threat? Well, I've honestly read countless assessments, I can't tell you how many, by medical professionals and disaster planning specialists about the potential for global pandemic of one disease or another, and all seem to have a common conclusion. The view seems to be it's not if, but when. And it's not will, will we have a disease spread out of control, but which one and how many people will it kill. Uh, is that a bleak outlook? Well, sort of, I guess. To me, it's simply an honest assessment. Now, unlike global warming, where we are told there's a consensus only to find the statement false, I can't find a single medical expert or record anywhere, or medical record, uh, medical expert on record anywhere that says we have nothing to fear from global disease outbreak or one won't occur sooner or later, uh, given enough time. So, I, what I'm saying here, folks, is that we actually have true medical and scientific consensus on this issue. That sooner or later, and anybody you talk to, every, any doctor I've talked to, and they're like, and they're like, well, I don't think it's going to happen right now. But you say, well, do you think sooner or later we're going to have a really bad disease glow all around the world and kill millions of people? And they always say, well, yeah, sooner or later. It might be a thousand years, it might be a hundred, it might be ten. I really don't know. It could be tomorrow, but... I mean, there's no way to know, but I think that's going to happen. And I think if you talk to anybody that understands, you know, the way uh, medical things work and the way biology works, they'll tell you that. And if you understand how a disease mutates, spreads and evolves and functions, it's pretty clear why the experts feel that way. Looking just at the flu, there are new strains every year. Science constantly races to prepare for the right vaccines each year, and still they often get it wrong. Fortunately, most strains of the flu are rather mild and only cause death in very young, very weak, or very old uh, people. Yet every once in a while, nature takes something as mundane as the flu, and it throws humanity a curveball. <clears throat> in 1918, and I want, you know, we hear 1918, and we think, man, that's, that's 
That's a long time ago, man. People were dropping over all the time back then at the age of 30. You know, that was an old man. And it's not true, folks. Uh, but the thing we got to get in our heads here, 1918 was less than 100 years ago. Less than one human lifespan. There are still people alive today that were alive in 1918. So we have to understand that if we really want to be honest about how close that threat is to where we are today. And what happened in 1918 was a strain of flu that came to be called the Spanish flu. According to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, um, and from now on, whenever I talk about Center for Disease Control uh, and Prevention, I'm just going to call them the CDC. Um, There were, this is a quote from the CDC website, an estimated one-third of the world's population, or at the time, 500 million people were infected and had clinically apparent illness during the 1918 and 1919 influenza pandemic. The disease was exceptionally severe. Case fatality rates were greater than 2. Point, or, or less than 2.5% compared to generally greater than one-tenth of 1% in other pandemics. Total deaths were estimated at 50 million and were arguably as high as 100 million. And I will give you a link in today's show notes so that you can go verify that statistic for yourself. And I'm going to give you a lot of links today, so make sure you check out today's show notes because everything I'm going to quote to you, I'm going to give you a source for. But let's put that in perspective with today's population because 50, you know, 50 million people died, 100 million people died. That sounds like a lot of people. Uh, but you just heard that 500 million people got the flu, and that was a third of the world got the flu. third of the world. 500 million. Well, we have 6. what, 2 billion, 6.7 billion people today. Um, the inf- if we had an infection rate of one-third of the world population today, that would be between 2.3 to 2.4 billion people infected. And a death rate of about 2.5% would mean that about 600 million people would die around the world. Let me give you that number again. Put this in perspective with today's population. There's about 6.7 billion people on the planet. If we have a flu with an infection rate or any disease with an infection rate of one-third of the population, between 2.3 and 2.4 billion people would be infected. And if we had a death rate in the neighborhood of 2.5%, that would be around 600 million people dead in the world. 600 million. 60% of a billion, gone, not here anymore. What type of impact would that have? And I know there's people that think, like, we're overpopulating the earth, and, well, maybe that wouldn't be so bad. How many of those 600 million do you think might have key skills that would be difficult to replace? And remember, every one of them is somebody's mother, father, brother, sister, child. 600 million gone. This is why I didn't do this broadcast right in the middle of the H1N1 uh, hysteria. Now, keep in mind, we have just about, just over 300 million, maybe 310 million people in the United States. So we're talking about a death rate that would kill two times the entire United States population. I want you to think about that. That's a death toll. Every man, woman, and child in America dead times two. Everybody you know, and everybody they know, and everybody within this country gone. Now, that doesn't mean that we would all be dead, right? 
The good news is for the, for the U.S. is we wouldn't all end up. Of course, the deaths would spread out across the world. I'm just trying to put this in perspective for you. Now, many people would be quick to point out our better, our better medical care today, better response capability, but this is just so short-sighted and putting far too much confidence in our government and medical facilities when we talk about things like pandemic or even a severe epidemic. If one-third of the United States were, would, would be infected, so we had a one-third infection rate, that's a 100 million people. So I thought, well, let's say we had 100 million people infected with a flu. And let's say this was a flu that once you got it, you really needed to be hospitalized if you were going to survive. So as I calculated these numbers, I said to myself, self, if we had 100 million people that needed to be hospitalized, and let's say it was even 50 million, so half of the infected people needed to be hospitalized, and let's say that this was spread out over a year, so at a peak, we needed hospital beds for 25% of the infected. So 25 million people need a hospital bed, being as conservative as I can. Self, how many hospital beds are there? Well, this is not easy to find. But I eventually found a survey. This is the best numbers I can get from the American Hospital Association from 2007. And I'll give you a link so you can verify this for yourself. That there's two types of hospital beds that they surveyed. There are 945,199 total staffed hospital beds in all U.S. registered hospitals. And there's 800,892 staffed beds in community hospitals. So we have about 1.7 million beds to work with to attempt to deal with 100 million life-threatening illnesses. Okay, so we have 1% of the beds versus the infection rate on a one-third infection rate. Now, Think about this, though. That's if no one else is in bed for any other disease, condition, or surgical need, uh, be they infectious or traumatic in nature. In the simplest mathematical terms, we don't have the space and resources to deal with this type of illness. Many would simply go untreated and live or die based on how they handle the disease. Now, look, if you're one of those people that are, you know, young, robust, and have a good immune system, uh, there's a tendency to think you'd be the ones to survive. Yet you know what? The 1918 pandemic threw another curveball at society. This is a quote from the America, uh, Pan American Health Society. Again, I'll put a link to this as well in today's show notes so you can go verify it for yourself. What made this influenza especially baffling to healthcare workers was that it attacked healthy, strong adults most often. Normally, the flu is only life-threatening to the elderly, young children, and people with compromised immune systems. Many adults became sick, but many adults become sick, but very few die. Spanish flu turned the tables on this pattern. Disproportionate numbers of men and women, especially pregnant women, died, leaving their orphan children behind. So that's what Spanish flu did. And I've read a variety of theories on why that was the case. Why so many healthy, strong adults died? And the truth is, no one really knows. There's some theories, but the most probable theory, in my opinion, and I'm going on opinion here, is that the pandemic strain of flu actually turned the immune system of the infected person against them. Hence, a stronger immune system resulted in a more deadly battle with the disease. So this flu actually, to me, looks like it had what's called an autoimmune component, where there are illnesses that people get, like lupus, that are autoimmune, where the immune system turns on the body. 
this flu seems to have triggered that. That's the best guess, uh, and that's the consensus of, of the medical establishment is that is the most likely. But even they say, well, we can't really prove one way or another exactly what happened uh, with this flu, but that's the best they can do. Look, and, and the Spanish flu is the most well-known flu pandemic, but they didn't stop after 1918. I think so, people talk about that year so much. They say, well, that's like when we beat it, right? We won. Well, we didn't win. There were two lesser pandemics that occurred in 1957 and then in 1968. Here's some statistics. This is from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Another thing I'll put a link to in today's show notes. Historically, the 20th century saw three pandemics. 1918 influenza pandemic caused at least 670,000... Hold on, i got an error here I need to correct in my notes. I don't want to give you the wrong number. That's no way that's right. Okay, I've got that correction for you. So here's the, the hit list of the last three flu pandemics. The 1918 uh, pandemic caused at least 500,000 U.S. deaths, and some estimates as high as 675,000 people died in the United States uh, from the Spanish flu. And the initial estimates worldwide were about 50 million deaths, and there are estimates today that that number was as high as 100 million uh, then in 1957, we had a little pandemic that killed 70,000 people in the United States, but worldwide had uh, 1 to 2 million deaths. 1968, we had another pandemic of about 34,000 U.S. deaths and uh, about 700,000 deaths worldwide. And I, I went to pandemicflu.gov where I had the original, these original source numbers from, and it's one link I won't be able to give you because apparently they've changed what's on that page, and now it's a checklist uh, for what you can do to be ready for the flu. Uh, it would have been nice if they would have made a new page for that instead of redirecting uh, the, the sold information that was actually quite valuable. Anyway, flu and potential pandemics, specifically the avian flu, uh, which until we heard all this swine flu nonsense, uh, was the big risk. That's not H1N1, but H5N1 has been in the news quite a bit the past few years, and no pandemic has come. This is our, you know, I, I look at this like this is, we're in a microwave oven world, so that leads to apathy. So because they've been talking about this bird flu for so long, people figure that the bird flu stuff was in the news last year, and I've not heard about it in a while, so let's be done with that, you know? This is a very apathy that makes so many people ill-prepared for disaster. Here's a sobering statistic. During 2003 to 2009, and this statistic is of, is of March 2009, there have been four. 112 confirmed cases of H5N1. That resulted in 256 deaths. Say that again. As of March 2009, there had been 412 confirmed cases of H5N1, also known as the bird flu. That resulted in 256 deaths. I do have a source for that. I'll provide in the show notes today as well, so that you again can verify that I'm, you know, not pulling these numbers out of my rear end. Uh, that's a death rate, folks of 62%. Let me say it again. It's a death rate of 62%. It is frightening to apply a 62% death rate with a potential infection of 2.3 billion people, isn't it? Remember we used the Spanish flu's infection rate and now we're using the bird flu's death rate. If we get a flu that mutates to cause those two things to happen, we're talking a 62% death rate on a 2.3 billion people infection rate. 
we're talking about about a billion and a half people gone. That's what flu pandemic can be. And that's what any pandemic can be. The danger with H5N1, like everything else, is the media sensationalized and hides the potential for an immediate risk. Then they and the public got bored with the topic and just sort of forgot about it. Yet, this is the thing people don't get. The flu doesn't rest, right? Right now, the flu and its many forms are mutating at a rate that the human mind really can't grasp. The virus has only one purpose, to reproduce. And each time a single virus reproduces, it creates thousands of new viruses. Each generation will have mutations within them. Any mutation that allows the virus to spread the infection faster and better resist the immunity of its host will reproduce and continue the positive aspects of its mutation for the next generation. Let me be clear, the positive aspects for the virus, not for us. So if the virus finds a way to be more infectious, then that trait will be passed on. Understand that a generation in the virus world is like two to three days in duration. Evolution is in hyperdrive at the viral level. Adaptations that would take millions of years in the world of mammals might occur in a few months in the viral world. They do things quickly because they reproduce rapidly and they run their life cycles rapidly. This is something I think a lot of people just do not get their hands around, their head around. And this is precisely why experts have adapted a not-if-but-when view of another eventual flu pandemic. Another danger, though, is the very focus on the flu. The flu virus is highly mutative, highly adaptable, has a history of killing humans in large numbers. So it's an obvious disease to watch and discuss, but it's far from the only threat uh, the disease world has in store for us. Here's an There are an entire myriad of illnesses that pose a potential threat for epidemic or pandemic given a mutation or simply the right set of circumstances. According to the Trust for American Health, in a recent report called Germs Go Global, we have the following things to be concerned about. Um, these are major threats from around uh, the world, but they're currently in the U.S., at least on some level. Emerging diseases like the potential for a, of a pandemic flu outbreak or another new disease like severe acute respiratory syndrome, or SARS. Remember SARS? We've all forgotten about it. Remember how many people it killed? Basically, you know, 70% of the people that got it died. Dengue fever sickens 100 to 200 Americans each year. It's a small number. It's usually bought back by foreign travelers and is of particular concern around the U.S.-Mexico border. Isn't that great where we have all the drug wars and the decline in hygiene and everything else going on spreading into Texas, Arizona, and California? More than 90,000 Americans have been infected by methicillin-resistant strapil... Uh, I can't even say the word, but it's called MRSA. Uh, and that is now the sixth leading cause of death in the U.S. Uh, again, I'll give you a link to this report. so you can. I, I didn't believe that when I had to check into it. The sixth leading cause of death in the, in the United States is MRSA infection. And my wife said, yeah, that's bad stuff. And, and they really worry about any kid with any kind of uh, infected boil or anything, uh, you know, having that. Right now, an estimated 3.2 million Americans have hepatitis C infections, costing the country $15 billion annually in health care costs. Now, do I think we're in danger of having a hepatitis, you know, pandemic? No. 
but I'm bringing that statistic to you to explain to you how much these types of things could cost if they go, you know, kind of awry. Looking at the same thing, about 1.2 million Americans are living with HIV-AIDS, and nearly 566,000 Americans have died from AIDS since 1981. Last year, the total federal spending on HIV-AIDS-related medical care, research, prevention, and other activities was $23.3 billion. We also have re-emerging diseases, which were thought to be nearly eliminated in the United States, including measles, mumps, and tuberculosis. Worldwide infectious diseases are the leading killer of children and adolescents and are one of the leading causes of death for adults. Again, that comes from HealthyAmericas.org. I'll put a uh, link in today's show notes. Now, keep in mind that these are just the known diseases that the media and our government considers worth discussion and or spin. For instance, there's a disease called nymph, uh, which is spelled N-I-P-A-H. It originates in Malaysian bats, and it recently spread to and began killing pigs. The epidemic was caught and contained and shut down, but 15 years ago, no one even knew this disease existed. Most Americans today still have never heard of it. While this disease did not mutate and spread from pigs to humans or from human to human, it did manage to infect quite a few people. The source was batch drinking date palm juice gathered in... Uh, that was then gathered, rejoined, and directly consumed by people. And this comes from Discover Magazine. More outbreaks, this is again a quote from Discover, more outbreaks followed in 2003 than between February and April of 2004. 36 people in the Fred Parr district became ill with NIP. 27 died. 36 people got it, 27 died. The higher death rate could reflect changes in the virus, poor general health of the victims, less effective health care, a combination of factors. More ominously, at least six of the victims developed acute respiratory distress syndrome, a condition in which fluid builds up in the lungs and prevents normal breathing. These symptoms had not been a feature of disease in humans before. This has affected very few people. And it's already changed the way that it infects people. Back to the quote. So far, the human clusters are small in size. The most recent outbreak was in 2005 when 11 of 12 victims died. Most had consumed raw date palm juice, which is tapped from cuts made at the tops of trees where clay pots are fastened to collect the juice overnight. Bats roosting near the village naturally sipped from the pots, leaving traces of nymph-laden saliva which people would ingest the next morning. Again, that comes from Discover Magazine. I'll put a link to it. Now, to me, there's two alarming components about nymph. First, again, this was a completely unknown disease until 1999. No one thinks anybody made this up in, you know, Alex Jones isn't even running his mouth about this, saying, oh, they made it in a lab, they're going to kill us all with it. This is just a disease that's been out there forever. It's been in bats forever, and it just came to the right set of circumstances to get into humans. How many other things out there are there like that? Now, here's the big one. The death rate, from the statistics I just gave you, from 2004 to 2005, and I left the 11 out of 12 because that seems like, an, in a, like too small of a cluster to include, but that initial death rate was 81%. 81% of the people that got this illness that's been around forever, no one knew about it until 1999, died. This leads anyone with a rational mind out there to ask a very simple question. What other potentially fatal and infectious diseases are yet to be discovered, and what will be the consequences of their discovery? 
there may even be a infe- highly infectious and highly fatal disease out there that killed many people in the past that we've never identified, have no idea where it came from or where it went. This disease killed an estimated 75 to 200 million people, peaking from 1347 to 1351, depending on which statistics you believe. In, in any event, uh, in 1300, there were only an estimated 300 to 450 million people on the planet. Hence, the Black Death killed a minimum of 16% of the world's population, and by the worst estimates, killed 66% of the people on the planet. So what was the Black Death? Everyone knows it was bubonic plague, right? Not so fast. Here's from an article uh, published by a guy named Andre L. C. Messer in 2002. Uh, Direct quote again, I'll give you a link so you can look at this for yourself. These records indicate that the spread of the Black Death was more rapid than formerly believed. Wood told attendees today, April 12th, at the annual meeting of the American Association of Physical Anthropologists in Buffalo, New York. This disease appears to spread too rapidly among humans to be something that must first be established in wild rodent populations like bubonic plague. An analysis of the priest's monthly mortality rates during the epidemic shows a 45-fold greater risk of death than during normal times, a level of mortality far higher than usually associated with bubonic plague. And again, I'll give you a link to, uh, to that article so you can look at the rest of it for yourself. What one takes away from this is simply we really don't know what killed as much as two-thirds of the world's population in the 1300s. We have no idea if the disease is known today or not. So which disease will be the next one that turns into a global pandemic that every expert seems to feel will happen sooner or later? No one knows. No one knows. What we do know is this is yet one more reason to prep and be ready for anything. Remember on your planning to always think about commonality of disaster. You don't need to specifically prepare for pandemic. You simply need to prepare, period. Uh, and that's really what I want you to take away from today's episode. I went into pandemic. I gave you all of these statistics today. I gave you all of these facts. A lot of times I get on and I do a show, and maybe this one wasn't as exciting for you, but hopefully it was a little more shocking. Because I wasn't here just giving a lot of opinion and conjecture on top of fact. I gave you raw fact there with just a little bit of opinion injected for about 25 minutes. Every one of those numbers is raw fact, thoroughly researched. And like I said, I probably put more time into researching this episode than I had put into anything else. And the only reason I didn't do it when I originally compiled the data was out of a concern toward adding flames to a fire of hysteria that was going nuts last year, right about this time. It's right about a year ago that the swine flu surfaced and everybody freaked out. And you could even find a, uh, you know, a dust mask at Home Depot because everybody was out buying medical masks and dust masks. I, and I think most of the people buying them didn't even know why they were buying them. But when it comes down to it, it doesn't matter if it's pandemic it doesn't matter if it's a trucker's strike. It doesn't matter if it's peak oil. It doesn't matter if the sun farts out a gas ball of hatred plasma and knocks out our electrical grid. It doesn't matter if it's an agricultural failure around the world that causes a food shortage. It doesn't matter what it is. The majority of the things that we'll suffer from are identical. The disasters are always acute. They peak, they kill, they maim, they harm, they damage, and they fade. They come in a bubble. 
And on the backside of that bubble where people are left without systems of support is where the danger actually begins. Once the disaster has passed and people are willing to stick their head up and go out and try to put the pieces back together and they're hungry, starving, scared, without shelter, without clothing, and without the systems of support that they've come to expect, not even come to expect, come to believe in, almost with a faith that, that bars on a religion. Somebody recently sent me an article, I haven't even read it yet, but they wanted to point out one little statement in it. They said, I think maybe I'm reading too much into this because it wasn't about disaster, but the one person quoted in it said, I had always depended on Walmart for everything. I don't think that person was reading anything too much into that story. I think that is the mentality that the American people and people around much of the developed world have today. I depend on the stores for everything. Well, what would you do if you ran out of this? I'll go to the store and get it. What if that store wasn't available? I'll go to a different store. What if no other stores were available? And they just kind of go, what are you talking about? You're crazy. Really? We're crazy. So, I just gave you a statistic of diseases that have killed 50% or more of the infected people. I've given you statistics of diseases that infected a third of the world's population. All we need is the viruses or the bacteria of the world to have one good day for them, where those traits combine, and we get an infection rate of 30%, a death rate of 60%, and we end up with a global death rate. Then, guess what, folks? That's about 4 billion people gone from the planet. When I was a kid in high school, there were 4 billion people on the planet. So people say, well, that's the extreme. Fine, cut it in half. Now it's 2 billion people gone. We'll cut it in half again. Now it's a billion people gone. Let's cut it in half again. Now it's 500 million people gone. 500 million people over a one-year period gone. That's almost twice the population of the United States. But like I said, doesn't matter if it's pandemic. All that matters is that you're prepared and that you're ready for whatever could possibly come your way, as best you can. Now, do I want you to freak out and run out and buy a pandemic kit online for 200 bucks with a bunch of nonsense in it today? No. Do I want you to be so scared today that you're afraid to go out the door? No. I don't want anything like that for me. I want you to keep living your life boldly with courage. And I want you to keep living the philosophy of having a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. But I also want you to be aware of our vulnerability. And many of the statistics I gave you today, since you're kind of me preaching to the choir at this point, they're not directly for you, though I think you probably found them interesting. But you can take a few of them, and when you're talking to somebody that says, you have six months worth of food, or you have two months worth of food, or a month worth of food. There's people out there with a month worth of food, and the people around them think you're crazy for a month. That's like saying you're crazy for filling your car instead of just putting five gallons of it, 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 gas in it every week if you only use five gallons a week. Right? And there's people that use five gallons of gas a week. They drive maybe ten miles to work and back. So these five gallons a week, they have a 20-gallon tank. They fill it up. That's a month's supply of gas. At one time, you're crazy, right? Because that's the same mentality. Well, I think these are sobering statistics that you can give them. How about this NIF stuff, right, that comes from these bats? 1999 back 
We don't even know it exists. Never heard of it. There's no such thing. If you would have said there's this disease that bats have, and if they drink out of something, and then a person drinks out of it, the person can get it, and like 86% of the people that get this disease are going to fall all over and die. You would have been labeled a fruity loon. Well, there's nothing like that out there. The people that went through medical encyclopedias, there's nothing like that. 1999, all of a sudden some pigs start to get sick. A few people that are taking care of the pigs get sick as well. Those people start to die. CDC and the World Health Organization goes, we have a problem, we don't know what this is. They go out there and all of a sudden we have a new disease. Now, am I worried about that disease coming to the United States and infecting me and you? Am I worried about any of us beginning to drink date palm juice that fruit bats have lapped up without any kind of pasteurization first? Absolutely not. My reason for bringing that disease up was we didn't know it was there. And that means that we could be walking around every day a disease that simply has not made the leap to infect human beings yet. And the scary thing about NIF was how quickly it mutated. The first people that got it had no, didn't have any of the severe acute respiratory symptoms where their chest flooded with fluid. The second group of people did. That was a one-level infection mutation. These threats are out there. And they're real. And they're not the only threats that we have. So what do we do? We have food on hand. Food and water on hand are the biggest ways that you can prep for a pandemic, period. A pandemic can be the most survivable global disaster there is if you don't get infected when it begins to, 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 to rage, you're, you find out that it's happening, and you make a conscious decision to go into some level of self-quarantine. Doing that will generally allow you to survive a pandemic. It may be of all the horrific things, as horrific as it is, the ability to kill a billion people or half a billion people, it may be the easiest thing out there that we can survive. I think it would be easier to survive through self-imposed quarantine than if our electrical grid is shut down during a giant solar storm, which happens to be, you know, possible in 2012. And all the 2012 people are freaking out, going, see, see! No, I think you 2012 people need to take a pill. We've had solar flares for a long time. All right? And some of the 2012 people are going, look at all the earthquakes! And we've had earthquakes forever. But, hey, what we do have to accept is that we're vulnerable. We're vulnerable as individuals. We're vulnerable as a nation. We're vulnerable as a society. And we're vulnerable as a planet. And if we don't accept that, then it becomes really easy for us to lull ourselves into a false sense of security that government and science will always fix it. Government can't fix anything. Government causes far more problems than it ever solves. Government didn't fail in Louisiana after Hurricane Katrina because of malice. It failed due to incompetence. Hurricane Katrina affected far more than New Orleans, but New Orleans was the ground zero. It was the worst affected area. It was the area where people needed the most help. It was one city. And it was surrounded by the rest of the United States that were willing, ready, and able to help. And even with that effort, 
the incompetence of government, and the overwhelming nature of the situation resulted in some catastrophic failures to render aid. Period. And the people there take some of the responsibility that were told, get out, and they didn't leave. But most of the people did leave. And we still had that. So let's expand ground zero to be a state versus a city. Let's expand ground zero to be four states instead of a city. Let's expand ground zero to be the United States of America in any disaster. And who's going to bail us out? Who is going to come and help us? Let's expand ground zero to affect major parts of the entire globe. Who's going to help us now? The visitors from outer space that some people seem to think are coming? I'm not waiting on them. I'm not waiting on government. I'm not waiting on aliens. I'm really not waiting on them. I'm not waiting on my neighbor. I'm not waiting on my state government. I'm not waiting on medical science. I'm not waiting on science. I'm not waiting on corporate America. I'm making a difference today for myself in a positive way that's going to make my life better, even if none of this scary crap ever happens. And if it ever happens, I'll be prepared for it. I hope you will, too. And here's the big message that I want to leave you with today. If I'm completely wrong about all this stuff, if nothing ever goes wrong, and you follow the the mentality of, of preppers and the mentality of the survival podcast, I promise you when you're 75 years old and you've been retired for 15 or 20 years by that point, instead of just getting the gold watch that never comes anyway, you won't regret it. I promise you that if you follow the philosophies here and at least put away a month's supply of food and pay off your debt and do all the things that we talk about, grow a little garden and disconnect yourself from the false beliefs of society and the slavery of society, that day to day, you won't regret it. I promise you if you do that and a disaster does come, you won't regret it. Those are three promises that I can make to you that I know will not be broken. I know these things because I've lived them. I have one fourth promise, and it's a dark one, and I hate, I hate to bring it up because I don't like to speak in fear, but sometimes you need a smack in the face of reality. If you hear this message today, if you hear this from me or anyone else, if someone tells you about this and you do not act, I actually have two dark promises for you. One, when you're 75 and just beginning to retire, you still have debt, And even if nothing went wrong, you'll regret it. That's a little bit of a dark promise. That's a great promise. You'll be just like all the other 75-year-old people out there. It won't be that bad. You can live on whatever the Social Security money they pay you is worth because the chairman of the Federal Reserve said we can absolutely guarantee that we can pay the Social Security checks. Everybody that says we can't is lying. And Ron Paul said, can you guarantee the value of the money that you'll be using to pay the Social Security checks? And he said no. So they'll give you a great, maybe Social Security will be $10,000 when you're 75. $10,000 a month. $120,000 a year. Sounds like a lot of money. Well, folks, $1,300 a month sounded like a lot of money 50 years ago, too. That's one dark promise. And now I'm going to give you the real dark promise. The dark one that I hate to give you, but I'm a man of my word. I always keep my word. And when I need to give my word, I give it. I'm going to give it to you right now. If you've heard this from me or anybody else, 
and you've thought about doing it, and you've thought about getting on the prepper lifestyle bandwagon, if you've started thinking about having a documentation package so you know where to go, who to call, what to do, if you've thought about just buying a little bit of extra food every day, putting some water away, starting to grow some of your own food, paying off your debt, if you've thought about all of this, but you don't act, and one day you hear a story about a flu pandemic starting on the TV, and unlike the H1N1 uh, swine flu nonsense, this one's different. And they say it's already killed 200 people before we even figured out what it is. It's spreading very, very quickly. It does have a high lethality rate. There is no hype here. The government's already looking at imposing quarantines in the highly affected areas, and they're expected throughout the United States soon. Or any other disaster strikes, and you've thought about it but not doing it, you will regret it. And God, I hate to put it that way. But you, I cannot be dishonest with you. You'll regret it. And some of you out there know what I'm talking about. Because when this little bird or swine flu thing popped up, back about this time last year, and we didn't quite know yet, there was that thing in your gut that felt bad. Even those of you that were prepping some but didn't really prep that much yet, you were just kind of getting started, or you didn't really do the things you knew you should have done, and you felt that, imagine that times a thousand. That's the feeling that you'll have if you ignore the reality at play here, that as human beings we have a need to use our brains. Because we're the only species that can understand these things. I mentioned earlier this week I have feeders outside of my house. There ain't now that fox squirrel sitting there again eating my sunflower seeds, also wondering if he's going to become part of a stew pot. And he might. Better stay away from the deadfalls that I've set for the, the cotton rats, because if he goes under there, he's going to be a flat squirrel. But that little squirrel's cute. He's cool. He's neat. He's sitting there looking at me through the window right now, wondering what I'm going to do. But you know what he can't do? He cannot postulate the fact that there could be a disease or anything that could cause him problems. He's been coming here for a long time, eating those black oil sunflower seeds out of that container. He's probably come to expect them. He has no thought process in his little beanie head that one day that his benefactor, me, if I don't put him in a stew pot, will move. Very, very soon I'm going to move, and even squirrel years, right? We're talking a few months and when I move, I'll take that feeder with me. And there's a very good chance that the people that buy my house won't care about birds and squirrels and won't put a feeder out there with food in it. And that food supply he's been dependent upon for so long will be gone. Fortunately for him, he's a squirrel. He'll be able to go find something else. But he can't even conceive of the fact that those sunflower seeds might not be there always. We can. We can conceive of a fact when the 7-Eleven and the Kroger supermarkets and the gas stations are simply closed because there's nothing there anyway. So if we have the ability to think ahead like that, then we have a duty to the people that we claim we care about to be prepared for that eventuality to occur. And I can't be any more direct with it than that. The good news, it's not hard. It's actually pretty easy. Go to the grocery store, look at the stuff you eat that stores well. Buy one or two extra items a week. Do that for a few months. You'll be surprised at how much extra food you have stored. Put a little bit of that money that you're saving in that 401k or in that savings account. Buy a little bit of silver. Buy a little bit of gold. Put it away. I have people say, I can't afford to buy any gold. It's too expensive per ounce. 
Go buy some five or ten gram little bars. Buy one this month, one next month, one the next month. It's a more expensive way to buy gold. It still puts gold into your portfolio. Take the time to learn. Take the time to share. Take the time to build community. Grow food. People ask me how important is gardening and permaculture to a disaster. With what we've talked about today, if you're in a self-imposed quarantine for 90 days, you know, even if you have enough food to survive that long stored, wouldn't it be nice to add a little bit of fresh fruit, a little bit of fresh vegetables into that mix? As you're building up your storage to last longer than 90 days, wouldn't it be nice if all the food you stored didn't have to be bought? What if some of it could simply be harvested from your backyard and frozen, canned, or dried? Planting green beans along on your fence line could provide you with literally hundreds of pounds of green beans for free. Once you save the seed from one year to the next, you don't even have to buy the seed anymore. By the way, you'll be fertilizing your ground with nitrogen every time you grow beans in it. These things are simple. They're not hard. They just require some dedication. So that's the good news. In spite of all the sombering and scary-ass statistics I gave you today, I'm leaving you with the same message I always leave you with. You have the power to affect change in your life and affect change in the lives of the people around you. You have the power to change every single thing about the way you view this world that fast in an instant just because you've chosen to. You have the ability to look at fear in the face and deny its power over you. Because you're smart enough, intelligent enough, to take the actions necessary to confront fear before it ever even enters your life. And you're left with only the good kind of fear. The kind of fear that says, hell, a car's coming. Get the hell out of the way now. Jump. Move. Don't worry about the bushes getting scratched. The car will kill you. The bush won't. It's the only fear there's any room for your life in. It's fear of things like that. And it's your choice. You have to make that choice. I think most of you already have. But I want to reassure you that you made a good choice. Because sometimes you'll look around at the people around you, and you'll think, maybe they're right. Maybe I am crazy. You're not crazy. You're smart. You trust your gut. You trust your instincts. There could be no more responsible use of your cognitive functions than to trust your instincts and trust your gut and think your way out of problems before they occur. See, I think we as human beings have been given a great gift. Like I said, that fox squirrel doesn't understand this. There's a couple white-winged doves on the ground underneath the feeder eating what he's knocking out. They don't understand this. There's a little house sparrow looking through my window right now. He doesn't understand this. I could bring the closest animal to humans out here. I could have an ape of some sort a gorilla or a chimpanzee out there eating a banana, and he wouldn't understand this. We're the only creatures that we know of that exist in the universe. Now, there may be others somewhere, but from what we know, we are the only creatures in the universe that have the gift to be able to look into the future, postulate it, plan for it, and be prepared for a disaster before it occurs. When we as humans walk around blindly and just say we don't have anything to worry about, we're spitting in the face of the creator that gave us that gift. And whether you believe that that creator is God of the Bible, if you are a Hindu, a Muslim, a Buddhist, if you're an atheist that believes the universe created you through an evolutionary process, I don't care what your belief is, 
If you believe that you were created with this gift, whatever the creator of that gift is, when you deny it, you're spitting in his face. You're spitting in its face. You're spitting in her face. I'll say it any way that you need to hear it to understand what you're doing. You're taking one of the most precious gifts that a life form could ever receive, and you're trashing it. But when you use it, when you harness it, that's not insanity. It's the most rational thing and the most responsible thing that we can ever do. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter.